0: Hey y'all. Before I get to the podcast, I've got an important announcement. I've been volunteering as a member of the Texom production team for several years now, and the Texom Awards is coming up very soon. Texom Awards, by the way, is the new name for the Texom International Wine Awards. Only now it's not just wine, but it's also spirits and mead and cider and other beverages, so it's called Texom Awards. Anyway, the event is taking place this month in mid-February. In the past couple of years, it's happened later on in the spring, but the time is now to get your entries in. The regular submission deadline to submit entries in the Texom portal is Monday, February the 5th at 5 p.m. Wines should then be delivered to the warehouse by February the 9th. Texom will continue to accept entries after that time, but fees will increase and it will also have all the volunteers working overtime. I added that bit. Additional event details and awards information can be found at Texom.com. Whether you're a regular entrant in the Texom Awards or entering this distinguished competition for the very first time, get those wines in stat. I've just come from a meeting of the production team, and I was so happy to hear that Texas Wine Growers is sponsoring a dinner at the event and pouring their wines there. I'm very excited that the competition judges who come in from all over the United States and even the world and the other volunteers will get to try some of the great Texas wines that are produced by members of Texas Wine Growers. And I hear that Kelsey Kramer of William Chris Wine Company will be doing the educational portion I'm sure it will be a fun night. Thanks, Texas wine growers. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 76, and it's my first episode of 2024. So happy new year and happy February. I'm thrilled that Fritz Westover is my first guest of the year. He's a wealth of information for Texas grape growers, and his comments and resources will be valuable to anyone who's growing grapes or considering growing grapes, and really to anyone who's involved in Texas wine. Let's not forget that without Texas-grown grapes, there is no Texas wine, at least in my book. And since it's been about six weeks since my last episode, we've got a lot of Texas wine news to talk about, including results from the San Francisco Chronicle Wine Competition, several articles in national wine publications, and more. So let's get right to it. Whether you're a regular listener or tuning in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Congratulations to all of the wineries that recently received medals from the San Francisco Chronicle Wine Competition. There were 11 best-in-class medals given to Texas wineries for Texas wine. Winning best-in-class means that your Texas wine was the top performer in the entire category of entries. And just a few categories that Texas won included dry Riesling, Malbec up to $38.99, Montepulciano, Gewurztraminer, Simeon, Carmenere, Tempranillo Leading Blend, and White Blend, $22 to $29. What I like doing is taking a close look at all of the entries by category and seeing how well Texas did compared to the other wines in that category. For example, there were 52 Chardonnays above $46 that won awards. One of those was the only Texas Chardonnay that was awarded, and it got a double gold and that was the Adega Vino Texas Hill Country Chardonnay an amazing result there were also double gold winners from California and Oregon In another category, there were only two Texas Rosés that won gold medals. Both were by Ron Yates with fruit from farmhouse vineyards. I always love those Ron Yates Rosés. I'm guessing there aren't a lot of Texas Rosés entered because I feel like there would be more winners. It seems like those wines are usually quite limited in quantity, so maybe those aren't the wines that wineries are sending in for judging. Chateau Wright had a strong showing, winning Best in Class for Malbec up to 38 99. There were 43 medalists in this category, and most of them were from California and Washington, but there were also a handful from Arizona, Oregon, Missouri, and Texas. 16 Montepulcianos were awarded across the board, and seven of those were for Texas Montepulciano. Top scorers there were Cristobal, Parasos, and Hilmi. When I looked at dry Riesling, I found that only one Texas wine got a medal, but it was a big one. Best in class for English Newsom's dry Riesling. They beat out 26 other Rieslings for bragging rights. Wedding Oak also had a gold medal for medium dry Riesling. As you might expect, Texas did very well in the Tempranillo categories, In the higher price point category, $40 and above, Texas wineries won six golds. In the under $40 category, Wedding Oak won best of class. There were 26 Texas wineries that won at least one gold medal or higher, like double gold or best in class. And there were 17 Texas wineries that won three or more gold medals or higher. The highest total medals, gold and higher, were Abastris, Carter Creek, and Ron Yates. They each had six, gold, double, gold, or best in class. And Wedding Oak and Becker had five gold medals or higher. You can see all the Texas winners on the Texas Wine Lover website. And if you're a nerd like me and want to see the spreadsheet where I did my analysis, just let me know. I'm happy to share it. And I just counted wines that have a Texas appellation, so Texas, Texas AVA, or a Texas vineyard or county. Well, Wine Enthusiast is loving Texas lately, and there are a couple of new articles that are Texas-focused. Amy Beth Wright wrote an article for Wine Enthusiast called Pierce's Disease Devastates Vines. Are these new hybrids the answer? And in the article, she gives some background about Pierce's disease and its significant economic impact. On this podcast, you've heard some about these five new hybrid grape varieties that are Pierce's disease resistant. They're often called Walker varieties. And Amy Beth is asking in this article whether or not these new varieties are all they're cracked up to be. She says early plantings in the southeast and in Texas suggest that the hype is real. Many of the experts in the article are from Texas, including Jim Commis of Texas A&M University, who's been involved in research with the new varieties. She also talked with Texas A&M's Dr. Justin Shiner. And Dr. Shiner shares exactly how many acres we have planted across the state for these different walker varieties. And I really was going to try to read them off, but I don't know how to pronounce these, which it's a bit of a problem, actually for not only for me, but I imagine for um, other people who are going to be trying to read a wine label. So I'll just let you look up the article to see the exact grape varieties that are planted and how many acres. Okay, Texas A&M's Brianna Crowley is also quoted in the article. She's an extension viticulture program specialist, and she says that Texas has around 30 species of sharpshooter that can convey Pierce's disease. And there are many habitats and native grapevines growing everywhere. So if the new varieties can survive here and not show signs of disease, then they are truly PD resistant. Whitehall Lane is a Napa Valley winery that has also struggled with Pierce's disease, and they've already created wines from these new varieties. Dr. Bob Young of Bending Branch Winery was so impressed with Whitehall Lane's early bottlings that he decided to replant all of Bending Branch's estate vines with these new varieties. He's got 800 grapevines already planted and will plant another 400 this year, and he says he's very optimistic. Paul Bonarigo is also included in the article, He says he's had some challenges with the grape's color. There's also a small group of growers in the Rio Grande Valley that have planted some of these varieties. Another challenge with them is consumer acceptance of yet another new variety. I discussed this on my recent podcast with Clay Roop, and that's where I said that wineries may want to focus on branding their bottles with a label that conveys a premium blend as a potential marketing strategy. And by that, I mean they should use some type of fanciful name rather than labeling the bottle with the variety. Amy Beth used that bit in her article. This is another really well-researched and thoughtful article from Amy Beth, and it's a great thing that she's helping to tell these important stories that are happening in Texas vineyards. Be sure to say hi to her if you see her at the upcoming Texas Hill Country Symposium. The next Texas wine-focused wine enthusiast article is called This Remote Arts Mecca Near Marfa is Texas's Latest Wine Destination by Sarah Ventiera. This article is basically a profile of Alta Marfa and of Ricky Taylor and Katie Jablonski. It details their experiences in the Texas Davis Mountains, including the multiple attempts that it's taken to get their vineyard established there. You heard it straight from Ricky, in my podcast that I did with him a while back. Since the article ran, I've had an update from Ricky. Altamarfa has just announced that they're opening a new place that will serve as a tasting room, a wine bar, wine shop, will serve delicious food, and also will be the home of a full service coffee shop. It's called Mutual Friends. This new space will be a great place to purchase and enjoy all of the Altamarfa wines, but we'll also have a curated selection of wines made by other producers in Texas. They're going to be opening their doors soon, so be sure and make a stop if you're out in the Texas Davis Mountains. The old spot where Altamarfa used to conduct tastings will just be for production. Texas A&M University released an article on wine trends to watch in 2024. These include increased consumption of Texas wine, increased sustainability practices that improve winemaking, niche wines as the new normal. This includes things like niche varieties like Sagrantino, niche styles like orange wine, low and no alcohol wines, etc. Another trend to watch is continued growth in the industry and new AVAs. Yet another wine enthusiast article includes a Texas angle. The article is seven up and coming wine regions that should be on your radar by Pamela Vachon. She includes the Texas Hill Country as one such region. She includes a quote from a distributor of natural wines, and he mentions the Austin Winery and Lightsome Wines as two that are leading the charge. Finally, CNN Travel has named the Texas Hill Country as one of the best places to visit in 2024. The article only briefly mentions that there are wineries in the area, but there is a link to the Texas Hill Country Wineries page. I'll be heading to Horseshoe Bay for the upcoming Texas Hill Country Wine Symposium in a few days, and one of the important things that Texas Hill Country Wineries does each year is award academic scholarships to Texas residents enrolled in a school or college program related to and benefiting the Texas wine industry, One of the special scholarships that they award is the Blake Bingham Memorial Scholarship. It was created in 2022 in memory of Blake Bingham and his love of the Texas wine industry. Blake Eddie Bingham was the fifth child of Cliff and Betty Bingham, the owners and founders of Bingham Family Vineyards. As a member of the family business, Blake inspired others with his kindness and curiosity. They've created a brand-new red wine, and a portion of the proceeds from the sale of the wine go directly toward improving the Texas wine industry through educational access and support. The wine is a 2019 Tempranillo blend, and it's labeled with Blake Eddy Scholarship prominently on the label. The wine will be available at all HEBs this month, so watch out for it or ask for it if you don't see it. Thanks, Bingham family, for the sample bottle. I'll be enjoying that very soon, and it's great to know that I can buy more at HEB. There has been so much news since my last podcast that I'm saving some of it for the next episode. I'll be on a more regular schedule this spring, so tune in again soon to catch the latest. As always, you can find links to all of these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. My guest today is Fritz Westover of Westover Vineyard Advising. He's also the creator of Virtual Viticulture Academy and the Vineyard Underground podcast. I keep hearing great things about Fritz, so I decided it was time that I had him on the podcast. In our discussion, we talk about how Texas is unique among the states and countries where he advises, what advice he has for people considering planting a vineyard, and what excites him about the future of Texas wine. Here's our conversation
1: thanks Shelly for having me on. I'm a longtime listener of your podcast myself and uh, really love what you're doing. So it's an honor to be on here today and chat with you a little bit about what I'm up to.
0: Well, thanks. I know that you've got clients all across Texas as well as in other locations. And so to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today and what your business looks like?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'll try and just give a quick summary. But uh, first and foremost, I'm a viticulturist. So uh, expert on wine grape growing. And uh, I've been doing that for, gosh, over 23 years now. And I started in Pennsylvania. I'm actually originally from Pennsylvania. I went to Penn State, uh, got a degree in horticulture. Stayed on at Penn State for a master's in plant pathology, which really came in handy uh, in the, the wine industry where we have diseases to manage in vineyards. My first job was in Virginia, so I worked in the Virginia wine industry as an extension associate and uh, researcher for Virginia Tech at the Ag Research Center there. Worked with a guy named Tony Wolf. Who's recently retired but is an um, amazing viticulturist to really transform viticulture in Eastern North America, so Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania. Um, my history in Texas, though, started back in 2007 when a family move brought me to Texas. And so I left Virginia uh, and came down to Texas and lived in Houston. And at that time there were positions available for four viticulture advisors around the state. It was a, you know, t- funded program that had funding for about 4 or 5 years and so uh, each of the four were placed in different regions and i was um, lucky enough to find that the position in the gulf coast region was open uh, because i was moving to houston so that worked out really well so i started off working with um, hybrid grapes that are resistant to pierce's disease like blanc dubois Lenoir, and some of the others and so that was kind of my start in texas but i worked across the state in various programs, and um, I guess after a while of working with the Extension Service, almost seven years, um, I, I guess I got that itch to get out. So I... I saw that there was other opportunity in other regions. Um, I had not worked in California yet at that time. I Was really curious to get out there and dig into the wine industry there. You know, I had done a stint over in Italy uh, and harvest over there, and really loved how getting out of my comfort zone and out of my region really kind of expanded my thinking. So uh, it was time to move on, and so I moved to California and worked for a nonprofit doing education, outreach, and research, which is really what I was doing with Texas A&M, but more for a private nonprofit, and we worked on projects in vineyard sustainability. It was the vineyard team, and it was called the SIP program. I always loved that acronym, the Sustainability in Practice, so I got to really dig deep into a lot of sustainability issues in California, and of course, water conservation, um, you know, pest and disease management, and different areas where sustainability was important. Um, But really what started the consulting, and that's what I do now, uh, I'm still doing education and consulting, but the consulting in Texas started when I left Texas. I had the unique ability to keep working with a lot of the growers that I helped either get started from the ground up or who I jumped in and started helping when I came here back in 2007. So in 2013, I I launched um, Westover Vineyard Advising, that's my, my primary business, and I started working with a handful of growers in Texas that I'd already been helping. I asked them if they wanted to keep working with me and lo and behold they said yes so i kind of lived this lifestyle back and forth between california and texas and visited those growers a few times a year and uh, eventually just loved that so much shelly that that's really what i saw my heart was in it was in the one-on-one helping um, maybe a little bit less red tape that you have with university and other systems i really liked working for myself and just enjoyed that so i've been working as a vineyard consultant since 2013 formally uh, solo. And I've done a couple things since then and expanded into some new areas, which I'm happy to discuss with you today as well.
0: I, I was um, checking out your website of your business and I got a kick out of some of your clients who said, sure, we could grow grapes without Fritz, but why would we want to? <laughs> that
1: that <says laughs> yeah. it all. Yeah, I love that. That's great. And you know, that's the whole dream when you're advising and, and you have your own business is to work with the people you love working with and for them to really enjoy working with you and, and to carry that relationship on year after year. And I have to say, you know, most of the growers I work with will stick with me year in and year out. And then I have a few spots that open up each year and uh, and you know, I'm just trying to, to, to find that magic number and that magic kind of balance between how many how many growers I could really help well. and uh, and and who I really want to work with and who who likes working with me it's you know I think that's the dream well
0: there are only so many places where you can visit personally because of course these vineyards that you're consulting are a bit spread out Um, but you found a really innovative way to help more people in more states and even countries so tell us about the virtual viticulture
1: academy Yeah, thanks, Shelley. Um, You know, the Academy was an idea that I had been working on for some time. And um, when I had, I guess, let's just say more clients than I could really visit and visit well and spend the time that i wanted to in their vineyard you know i just couldn't expand my consulting business at that point point. and i really enjoyed who i was working with uh, but i wanted to help more growers that was always kind of my mentality having come through the um, extension service and kind of working as a public servant so the fact of the matter was i had a lot of great resources i had a lot of great um, materials i was handing out to my growers who i was consulting for i developed videos and programs that i shared with my clients and I just thought, well, what if I can find a way to get this information out to more growers? I could help more growers. And so the idea originally was to do some online courses and create something that a grower could find and then maybe purchase and then go through the program and learn about grape growing. But I really had my doubts if people were really going to complete those programs. I don't know if you've ever done an online course and never completed it. I know I have. I'm raising my hand, guilty. Uh, So I thought, well, why not try to create instead a community where growers can come to find the information, but have that um, continuing education component where there's someone they can talk to, um, get their questions answered, give feedback and and give some direction to where the program goes. And so we're going on our sixth year now with Virtual Viticulture Academy, Um, launched it. With the idea of getting a small group of growers in there, where I could um, provide advising on a on a monthly basis, answer their questions. I kind of joke with my my clients that it's kind of like my wine club. My growers have a wine club in their winery. You know, so you pay a set fee for for the year, and you get your your packages delivered in the mail monthly or quarterly or biannual. And so uh, it's kind of my wine club or my membership where growers are taking a part. And then uh, instead of getting wine delivered to them, they get this viticulture content and education delivered to them. So if I do a pruning workshop in Georgia or Arizona or somewhere in the Texas Hill Country, I videotape everything that I do and have it professionally edited. And then that's available for the members to watch. So the idea is it's expensive to travel. It's, uh, you know, we can't do all the meetings we want to do in a year. We can't do all the conferences uh, that are out there in a year. But if you can if you can get everything delivered to you, it's going to be a little bit easier to digest, and, and you'll have some time where you're not distracted, hopefully, where you can sit down and watch that and absorb that content. So through Virtual Viticulture Academy, we've got growers now. Uh, six years later, we've got growers in 30 states, more than 30 states, and over 10 countries. So it's become quite an international, national community uh, where growers not only learn about grape growing and get their questions answered, but they can also hear what the questions are from a grower in Portugal, or Italy, or Nebraska, uh, or Virginia, (laughs) California, Oregon, Washington, uh, wherever that grower is. So it's kind of a window, I always uh, view it as a window to the world maybe of grape growing and um, still working on developing the community. I feel like Uh, Growers may come in there for the content so they can learn pruning practices or learn the practices that I teach, Uh, but really I'm hoping they'll stay for the community and uh, that window to the world of grape growing.
0: That's really interesting. When I think about how different growers around the world are dealing with similar things, I guess I would have expected that there would have been more um, differences in different locations. But I guess in terms of things like pruning, a lot of best practices apply no matter what climate you're growing in or...
1: Yeah, there are definitely, so, okay, so you, you kind of hit the nail right on the head there. And I'll tell you a story that really lines up well with this thinking. When I first moved from Texas to California, I thought there's that little part of me that, you know, had doubt. Like, what am I going to teach these growers in California? They've been growing grapes for, you know, you know decades, and uh, if not longer. And so I'm coming from Texas, Virginia, the east. And it turned out when I got there that the growers had the same Types of problems that we have in the East—they had problems with pest and disease. They were just a little different types of pest and disease. They had problems with um, pruning, with training their workers and education, uh, irrigation and water management. These are really the same problems we're having in many regions across the country. So um, like you said, pruning uh, practices can apply from one region to the next. They may do cane pruning in one region and spur pruning in another. They may leave more buds in one region on their vines and less in another or with one variety versus another. Um, But learning about those regions and being able to make those connections and parallels has been fascinating because we can now take information that we're learning from Arizona, and apply that to Texas. We can take information we learned from Texas and apply that to the Midwest somewhere, uh, like in Iowa or Nebraska. And they may be growing completely different varieties, but the technologies or the approaches or the practices are really going to be similar. So uh, it's been really an eye-opening experience for me to work with growers in so many different places.
0: That's cool. I actually took one of your classes last night. You have some free content, and I took the class on 2023 Vintage Successes and Opportunities or some title like that. So that was fun. And, and um, you were sharing some new
1: pruning, um, like electric pruners. Uh, yes, I discussed some of the handheld electric pruners that my growers have been trying out over the years and which ones they like and why they like them.
0: Yeah, that was fun. And I do have a, a question or two about the, that class. I'll save that for a little bit later. Well, like me, you have decided that a podcast is one way that you can help share your message, and I think that is great. I've mentioned that to my listeners in the past that you have a podcast. So, tell me about Vineyard Underground.
1: Great. Well, thanks, Shelley. Uh, you know, being a podcast listener uh, for many years, and, and oftentimes even just listening to business podcasts to help with various aspects of running my business in the background, uh, I found that there weren't really a lot of viticulture podcast out there. In fact, uh, very few, if any, um, a lot of podcasts about wine drinking, wine appreciation, following winemakers, not so much about digging deep into the nitty gritty of grape growing. Um, so I bought a microphone about, I guess, eight years ago now, thinking that a podcast would be a great idea. And it took me until about a year ago to get it really launched and get it going. And it's partially because I have a great team of, of individuals who helped me to get that project launched. And so through the Academy, I have a lot of free content. So it, I say it's my wine club. You need to be a member. But you really don't. You could get in there and find a lot of great content. But you know, like any um, well-designed program, if you want to really dig deep into the the pruning practices or the videos there is some stuff that is a a member only content so of course that that's where i I hope that individuals will will join and, and get that content but i still had a lot to give and so the the podcast was a way for me to utilize just that network of experts that i've been building in the last 25 years and it's, for me, it's a fantastic opportunity to reach out and reconnect with those growers and those experts or researchers or other consultants in other regions but I thought, why not share that? Why not share that with other growers? It's, it's a great conversation that we're having in the background, and I know that there's a lot of great growers out there that would love to listen in and learn from that. So I launched Vineyard to Underground podcast um, a little over a year ago, and it's, it's been really very successful so far. I'm definitely excited to say that we um, have got growers all over the world listening to that podcast now. And what I'm trying to do with that is uh, really keep it straightforward, Um, not get lost in the weeds of research data. Um, My goal and my, my job has always been as an extension educator and now as a private educator to take the technical content that's coming through research universities and personal experience and then translate it so that a new grower or an intermediate grower or even an experienced grower can easily understand and utilize that information in their vineyards so the the vineyard underground is a way for me to do that to find out what the problems are what the the hard to understand um, aspects of grape growing are and to find experts who can help break that down to kind of a, a common level where everyone can listen in and learn from it so the vineyard Under- underground has just been a fantastic outlet for me uh it's fun i always felt like that you know Speaking, public speaking, and educating was, was what I love to do. And so it's just given me this whole new outlet where I can reach new ears. And um, I'm proud to say there's about a 70% listen-through on my episodes. So that means, I, I think what it means, Shelley, is people are out in their vineyard and they need something to listen to while they're you know hedging their vines or driving their tractor or driving between one vineyard block and another. And maybe I fit in there. I don't know.
0: Yes, that's, that's just probably exactly it. I've gotten similar feedback that, you know, when I know I have to drive into town, that's the time I listen to your podcast. So that's great. Oh, that's so
1: cool. Well,
0: because we are all about Texas wine on this podcast, I can't help but ask you some questions specifically about Texas and how Texas fits into everything that you see from around the U.S. Is Texas the state that has the most vintage variation of all the places where you work?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So Texas is really at the core of of what I do. And it's where I launched my consulting business. And it's where I really spent a lot of my time developing the practices that I teach now. And so Texas has so many diverse regions for growing. And I, I work in Georgia. I work in Arizona physically on the ground consulting. Those are the other two states I work in the most. Um, I work in other states as a virtual advisor, but I'm not physically visiting. I've maybe been to those vineyards, maybe one in Louisiana or North Carolina or Virginia, but I don't visit them constantly. But I am constantly traveling the state of Texas. And so my main areas of interest are the Hill Country area, the Texas High Plains area. I have some growers I work with in the Texoma, um, kind of northeastern portion of the state. And then I've got growers in the Gulf Coast who are growing hybrids that I first started working with um, so many years ago, uh, and I'm still working with today. So, yes, very, very different. I mean, if you go to the high plains, um, we're using hail netting. We're using wind machines for frost uh, protection. There's, there's just another barrage of, of tools in the toolbox that need to be used um, for the resilience that we, we need for grape growing in that region. It's, um, it's either a big year or not a big year on the High Plains most years, it's kind of feast or famine. We just are coming off of a very big year, as as you probably know here in 2023, a big year for everyone around the state. Um, whereas the Hill Country, you know, we have different challenges. Pierce's disease is more of a challenge there. Um, we have you know, issues with drought. That affects the whole state, I guess I should say. Um, but the, the rootstocks that we use, for example, in the Hill Country and the High Plains, they're going to be for a, a basic soil or high pH. But then we come to the eastern Texas area or even the Texoma region, and we can hit acidic soil. So we're still discovering what rootstocks are doing better there, what varieties are doing better there. Uh, It's interesting that, you know, growers um, in North Texas and in the Texoma region are having good success with Syrah, uh, which doesn't always do so well in other areas of the state. Uh, So it's just dialing in those subtle differences to try to see what's going to work over time. But yeah, Texas, uh, if you look at the rain map of the state, you know, it goes from 40 to 50 inches of rain in East Texas all the way to, to, you know, 8 to 10 on the western part of the state, some years, right, depends on the year. So it's very, very different, and the varieties of grapes we're growing differ. The rootstocks differ. The, um, the disease management and the spray programs that are occurring uh, across the state are going to vary. And I'm excited to say there's some growers who are dabbling in and, and initiating some. I should say reinitiating some interest in organic growing, uh, primarily in the Texas High Plains. So I'm very interested to follow that and and help guide that as well.
0: I love it. You've hit on several things that I would like to dig in just a bit deeper. And and one is actually Syrah. I had Grayson Davies on my podcast, and he is very proud of the Syrah that is growing on his estate vineyard. And then back in the spring, I attended a conference where Ed Hellman gave a talk about the different AVAs of Texas, and he presented a lineup of three different Syrahs. Um, what is it, do you think, about Syrah in that area? Is it the soil? Is it the rootstocks? Is it the plant material? Or
1: are the growing practices just dialed in there to get great Syrah? Yeah, well, it, to tell you I had the answer to that question would be you know delusional, Shelley. But the, the thing that I've noticed over time is that the climate there seems to favor Syrah a little bit better. The soils, I think, are really one of the main factors, the the um, acidic soils. I think that's just really where Syrah likes to live. The, the rootstocks need to be a little bit low vigor, or lo- preferably lower vigor, because Syrah as a variety is a vigorous growing variety. And most of our high pH soils require um berlandieri type rootstocks or with parentage of berlandieri for the high high ph high calcium content in the soil so you can use different rootstocks in acidic soil that you know have riparia Ripestris, and other um other stock that that's really a little bit more lower vigor so finding that balance and then you know we're still trying to figure out if you know there's some bud necrosis issues with Syrah. And we see those issues with Vermentino. We see those uh, issues with Tempranillo. Um, Syrah is, it, it really depends on the region it's growing as to how severe that bud necrosis is. And there's other factors like colonial selection, I'm sure, and rootstock and, and the weather and the season climate in general. But I, I find that you can spur prune or cane prune Syrah in North Texas. And so we're working on um, practices to, to really keep yields consistent Uh, because low yield uh, equals going out of business if you're in the Texas wine industry. And I think that's we can touch on that later if you want to, but there are some varieties that consistently produce, and there are some that are more finicky and uh, don't produce as well every year or have a biannual cropping uh, kind of pattern or have issues with um, they're just very cold tender. So we need something in each of these regions that can produce every year And that means yield well, but also produce good quality. And I think Syrah is one. I'm not saying it's the only one, but for some reason, it's doing better. I credit it to the soil and maybe the combinations of rootstocks and and the Syrah variety.
0: And I guess you also have to pick something that there's demand for, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you can't just find some uh, American hybrid that is bulletproof and grows everywhere And just throw it out there and and think that a market's going to develop for it. it. It's not quite that easy.
0: I'm guessing that clients come to you in all stages of development of their vineyard from, you know, we're thinking about planting a vineyard all the way through established vineyards. So when somebody is first coming to you and asking about, you know, do they ask, is this a good site even? Do you work on that level?
1: Absolutely. No, I've, I've literally helped hundreds of new grape growers uh, start up their vineyard and get established in the industry. And um, right now, uh, as a result of doing that for so long, the biggest question I find most new growers are, I'm going to call them prospective growers. They haven't planted a vine yet or maybe a, they have a few backyard vines and they want to go bigger with a commercial vineyard. Is is grape growing on a commercial level really what you want to do? And so you need to answer that question first. And so um, because of that, I've actually created an online course. Uh, It's a prospective wine grower uh, course that you can find at Virtual Viticulture Academy. Uh, And that is a kind of a prerequisite i have i have the the individual go through the course um it's a very inexpensive course and at the end of that they're going to have an idea of the economics of what it costs to plant and establish an acre of grapes or a 10 acre vineyard um an idea of a self-evaluation of their site they can evaluate their site use the, the, the the program to do that and then they can think about how much work it's gonna be. We'll talk about you know, the labor and what it's gonna look like all throughout the season. We'll lay it out very clearly how many hours and you know roughly it's gonna to take to do each task and what you really need to be doing because uh, it seems very romantic to a lot of individuals to get involved in, in growing grapes, but it's, as, as we know, a lot of work. So that course has been excellent. I just actually re-released it recently in 2023. And um, updated the economics on there and everything else, which as after the pandemic, all the economics kind of went out the window. So uh, those have all been updated. And then if a grower does that course and they still and they go through the risk factors and learn about the diseases and all the things that can go wrong and they still want to grow grapes, then, um, yes, then I will uh, offer to, to, to assess their site. Now, I have also what I call a virtual site assessment, which we do through the academy. And so if a grower uh, is far away from where I am or maybe they just can't afford to have someone fly out and look at their site. It's a virtual assessment of the vineyard that, that's basically going to look at their soils. It's going to instruct them on how to do their soil sampling. We'll look at the the results from that, give them recommendations on what they might need to overcome before planting, recommendations. So that's something that, that I've done in the last two years. And I've been really surprised, Shelley, how effective you can advise uh, growers from a distance. You don't always have to be there. Now, I will say it's always better if you can be there. I always get something more by walking the site, by digging uh, in the soil myself. And for all of my startups where I'm uh, going to be working with them in their vineyard eventually and be part of their team and integrating with their team, I absolutely get out to the site and take a look. Those are are going to be a little bit more comprehensive programs. But if someone's going to plant an acre to five acres or even 10 and just wants a professional opinion, uh, that offers a way to, to provide that input.
0: You mentioned that the pandemic had turned all the economics upside down. I'm guessing that one of the big drivers on if this makes sense economically is just can you do the labor yourself or do you need to outsource the labor? And I know there's a labor shortage. So can you talk about what are the key decision points on deciding whether or not this makes economic sense?
1: Yeah, so, and it's a very complex uh, topic to tackle on the economics because there's a lot of moving parts in supply chain, but labor is number one. If you have to hire a professional team to come in and install your vineyard, uh, the, the positive part of that is if they're experienced, you're going to get it done hopefully quickly and properly and, and then it's done, right? You can walk away and the, the hardware and infrastructure is in the ground. Um, but the cost, the, you know, the upfront cost is gonna be higher to pay for that labor with today's labor prices. So that, that's a pretty big deal. The cost of steel has gone up, uh, cost of wood, pretty much every uh, material that's gonna go into the ground or onto the trellis has gone up uh, in the last five years. Um, and it th- th- doesn't look like there's any change to that anytime uh, in sight. But labor, it's one thing to put a vineyard in the ground and hire a, even a fence building company to come out and, and hammer your post into the ground for you or pound your post in. It's another thing to be able to care for and manage the vineyard. So a new grower needs to understand that there, you know, if you have a five-acre vineyard, you're not going to manage it on the weekend with your spouse and maybe you know a family member or two it's something that you're you're going to need a full-time employee once you get up to that level or you're going to need to be in the vineyard um, as that full-time, full-time employee yeah and you know so people always ask me this is a fun question how many acres of grape can one person manage and you know if it's your full-time job maybe three <laughs> you know it may be three if you're going to do it all you're going to have downtime when you're not doing things, but then when you have to do things like pruning or harvest, you need help and, you, and you're going to be in there, you know, five to seven days a week. So it's really hard to put a number on that. And of course there's things like mechanization we can go into, but um, I guess the bottom line is if any grower comes to me and says, I'd, I want to plant a 10 acre vineyard, I'd probably convince them to start with two or maybe three and and see if they can manage that well before they expand. That seems reasonable.
0: Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot to that decision, I'm sure. Um, Changing directions just a little bit. You mentioned in California, you are working on the SIP program. You've mentioned sustainability and organics. What does that look
1: like in Texas? You know, that, that's something that I think is ever-evolving. In Texas, I think there's a lot of interest in sustainability in, ge- in general. And with sustainability, we're talking about the economic sustainability of, of your vineyard. Uh, we're talking about um, environmental stewardship, so not applying any inputs that are not absolutely necessary. Uh, thinking about runoff and, and other issues that can impact the environment. Um, And then, of course, the people. That's the other component is, you know, are the workers working safely? Are they um, enjoying what they're doing, hopefully? Because if they do, they're going to stick around and you don't have to keep retraining people into the future. So the sustainability component is not the same as organic. Organic is more of a a list of products that you cannot use. So you're restricted on things you can typically spray or fertilize with in your vineyard, Um, but it doesn't necessarily say that you're taking good care of your soil, right? So the sustainability component, I think, looks into how are you monitoring your soil and plant nutrition and how are you making smart decisions so that Uh, let's say 20 years from now, when you hand the vineyard off to the next generation, it's going to be as good of condition as you found it in, that soil and that land, or even better. Um, When it comes to organic, I think growers have tried organic in Texas and for various reasons have abandoned it, probably because they had a season or two where they had a lot of rainfall during the growing season. And um, what I'm seeing now is there are more and more uh, biological products entering the market, Uh, For example, it used to be that um, for the last 10 years, there there were not a lot of solutions for treating pruning wounds. So when you make a grapevine pruning wound, if there's rainfall shortly after, and one of the um, grapevine trunk disease spores lands on that pruning wound, like Esca or Eutypa or Botryosphaeria, that can grow into the pruning wound, and that can infect the vine permanently. So <clears throat> now we have newer products hitting the market, which I'll be looking into in the future, like Biotam, which is two species of trichoderma. Uh, so fungal species that are going to be sprayable in place of a fungicide that was conventional. So there's uh, Topsin-M, for example, is labeled in Texas as a pruning wound protectant. Uh, there are various sealants like um, viticil that, that place a barrier over top of the, the wound to try to exclude pathogens, but they can be pushed off with bleeding of sap, things like that coming out of the wound. So these biologicals offer a way to colonize the wound and actually compete with pathogens. That That's just one example of one product that's coming to the market that might replace a conventional product for a big, big issue we have in in areas of Texas where it actually rains during the pruning season, and that's most of the state. Um, But there there are other products out there that are hitting the market. The problem is we just don't have a lot of experience with these biological products and biopesticides, as some are calling them. And so I think there's a lot of room for experimentation. Hopefully the university is going to be looking into some of these as well. Um, And then, you know, there may be some seasons back to back where it rains a lot during the growing season and organic controls may be a real challenge or may not work at all. I really um, approach anything with the word organic with caution in an area where I know we have such variability in the climate from one season to the next. But I'm, uh, I'd say, cautiously optimistic that I think we have some growers who are really good farmers and understand what's going on on a deeper level in their site. And those are the growers that I think are, are more positioned to launch into experimenting with things like organic. The thing about sustainable is that anyone can practice sustainability. They just have to be accountable for uh, their management practices. And I think the biggest thing that we could do is just try to keep our soil uh, healthy. That's, to me, I'm kind of, it always comes back to the soil. So are we cover cropping? Are we allowing erosion to occur? Uh, are we tilling our soil to death? Uh, or are we allowing it to be uh, more of a living substrate for the vines to inhabit? And so so every part of the state has different floor management and soil management practices that have kind of been established in those regions. So from one region to the next, the, the management's going to differ a little when growers are trying to put a spin Towards sustainability and soil health, just as an example,
0: you're looking for soil health as a primary driver of um, that. Hopefully, your farming practices are supporting soil health as the ultimate goal.
1: Yeah, that's one that I fall back on because it, to me, it's the backbone of uh, nutrient availability for vines. It's the backbone of water holding capacity. And if you lose your soil to erosion, it doesn't grow back. <laughs> you, you lose it. So whether it's wind erosion or water erosion, uh, it takes tens of thousands of years to build a soil and it could be washed away in a, a single large rain event in some cases. So it's, it's, a, it's an important thing
0: one of the things that I heard about when I took your class last night on the 2023 season and some opportunities and and successes is that you talked about the new Andy Walker clones and the use of them in some vineyards do you what do you see as the future of of those new hybrids
1: yeah so the Andy Walkers uh, um, basically created a five primarily five Pierce's disease resistant um, varieties of grapes. And they've been all named. Uh, We have Caminari Noir, uh, Paisante Noir, Arante. Let's see, we've got Caminante Blanc and Ambulo Blanc. So just to name a few, right? Those are the main ones. My take on it is that we really know so little about how well they're going to perform in Texas in general. There's been some, some early work on some of the 87% and on Caminar Noir uh, in the Hill Country, where we've actually tasted some wines from them. Uh, I've tasted wines from California uh, that were, uh, these grapes have been grown in Napa Valley on some fringe areas where Pierce's disease was an issue. When Andy Walker came to grape camp several years ago, we tasted them and they tasted amazing, these reds and whites. And then you think, well, of course, they should taste pretty good. They're growing in Napa and they're 90 you know, something percent vinifera. So the question is, how do they perform when they're hit with seasonal rainfall, when they're in a region where you have black rot and downy mildew, which they don't have in Napa Valley? And how are these vines going to perform in our environment with our variations in temperature and humidity? It is, I mean, no one wants to say like grape growing is easy in California. But if you want to compare it to Texas, uh, (laughs) you know, it's a lot easier than Texas. So what nuances uh, are we going to coax out of those grapes in terms of flavor? Um, So are, are some of my growers growing the Andy Walker varieties? Yes. I mean, I have some growers in Texas growing them. I have some growers in Louisiana, some growers in Georgia. Uh, areas where Pierce's disease is a real challenge. And what I can say is none of them have been doing it long enough that I can draw a conclusion about which ones I like the best and which ones are going to be the most resilient in the vineyard. Uh, because there's a there's the the grape grower's grape, and then there's the winemaker's grape. You might hear people say that. They're, what does well, you know, people love the way Morved grows as a vinifera variety variety in the vineyard, but we can't just plant, you know, 5,000 acres of more ved in the state of Texas uh, because it's going to saturate the market. So we, we want something that's easier to grow and makes good wine. Um, if it's super hard to grow, but makes great wine, it's not really useful, you know, because the grower in the end has to be able to have a business growing that variety. This may be a silly question,
0: but do you enjoy wine?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, no, I've uh, I've been making wine um, with—my father was a home winemaker. Um, and so growing up, we would go to pick-your-own-operations and pick apples and peaches, and we'd go pick berries and choke cherries in the woods, wild cherries and raspberries. And he was always fermenting something in our basement, and so I would help him with that. And when I went to college then, I started making wine out of grapes coming from Lodi off of a train— through uh cleveland and then through pittsburgh and then to state college pennsylvania and i was part of a little group of winemakers uh locally there in state college when i was an undergrad so i always had something bubbling in a carboy in my apartment in college for sure and so love wine i love all kinds of wine Uh, i'll drink white wine pink wine red wine and dessert wine as long as it's well done love it
0: Well, we've talked about a number of things that are kind of, um, I guess, experimental, or we're trying to see if we can do organics. We're trying to see how these new varieties will play out. What excites you most that you anticipate in the next five
1: to 10 years in Texas wine? Great question. Yeah, Texas wine, if you just say, where have we come in the past five years and start there, uh, the number of acres has increased, the number of outside expertise that has come in from California, Oregon, Washington, France, Italy, uh, the East Coast, where they've been growing grapes uh, probably arguably longer than Texas, this expertise has been coming in. So I feel like there's a lot of momentum right now, and I also feel like we're at a point where people in Texas also understand, oh yes, there is good wine in Texas, because it used to be that that wasn't the general consensus maybe 10 or 15 years ago when I came to the state. So I felt always on the defense about, well, wait, have you tried so-and-so? They don't sell it at the grocery store. You have to go to the vineyard or the winery and get it. Um, So we've come a long way in terms of, of acres, in terms of learning what varieties do well. I think that in the future, we're, we're going to need to work more on resilience. So what I see is growers choosing more wisely the varieties they're growing based on what we've learned from the past five to ten years of, I just want to say, uh, challenging weather conditions. So the, the early fall freeze in 2019, that was uh, horrendous on the high plains. Um, we've had uh, late spring freezes. We've had deep winter freezes that have taken certain varieties out. We need to find this magical grape variety, or a handful of them, that, number one, are very, very cold-hardy, you know, maybe down to zero Fahrenheit if possible, um, that produce medium to large clustered grapes of loose bunches that are less rot-prone, right, and a little more disease-resistant, with thick skins, that would be awesome too, Um, you know, that also make amazing wine, and that people are crazy about buying and making, is that too much to ask, Shelly? No, not at all. I think that sounds reasonable. Yeah, so, so if you're going to say, okay, name those five, <laughs> we're not quite there yet. So, but, but the hint is you want to look towards varieties that have consistently produced throughout all of these challenging years, through drought years, through heat spikes, um, and through freezes, whether they're untimely or in the middle of the winter. Um, varieties that are a little bit, I'm moving towards better yielding. Uh, Varieties, Because if we can get 10 or 12 years of good yield out of a variety and then we have to replant it, that's better than struggling along with low to no yield for 12 years and having to replant it. And the economics of that are pretty pitiful. Whereas, you know, something like uh, I'll give you an example. I have a grower who's been growing Trebbiano for several years on the High Plains and it it can produce uh let's just say if 6 tons per acre were a high crop for a red you can you can produce a lot more maybe 8 or 10 tons per acre has been done Probably a little more than that in some cases. And the consensus is that the wines were excellent for the type of wine it was it was going into, you know, crisp, dry style wine. So this particular grower lost a lot in that 2019 freeze, but they rationalized I would replant that grape over again because in the, the seven years it produced for me, it did about you know 12 to 15 years worth of normal production, uh, if you're looking at a four ton per acre yield. So so looking into varieties that have a unique place uh, in the market is important, of course. I always encourage, and I, I talked about this on my on my uh, s- uh, synopsis of the 2023 season, make sure you have a contract when you plant that grape too. Um, you want to make sure that you have a place for it. And if, if you're not making it into wine yourself, you absolutely want to have a plan. You don't want to plant um, blindly and hope that someone's going to come and buy the grape. But large clustered varieties, uh, looser clustered varieties, varieties that are increasing in popularity but also are surviving these challenging weather conditions are all on the list moving forward. And, and I think we're still learning which rootstocks do well and which don't. Um, so so I think there's going to be some shifts. Uh, in, for example, if you have a late ripening red variety like Morved or Montepulciano, uh, some of these varieties really um, extend into the season the risk, because if you're ripening a month later than that other early red or white variety, that's a whole month of possible hail, possible freeze, uh, all kinds of things that can go wrong. Um, So something that ripens a little earlier is better. So we do know that if you put um, these varieties on an earlier ripening rootstock, it can help. So a lot of growers shifted towards 1103p because they're thinking of drought resistance and just hardiness and and i do use 1103p in some cases but it doesn't fit every variety and so maybe on something like montepulciano or Morvette or a later ripening red we can move to something like an so4 or some of a rootstock that maybe ripens a little sooner but still has the ability to handle the lime in the soil or the high calcium soils just for an example
0: that's interesting I'm glad that you mentioned the contracts, because that was also one of my takeaways from watching your your video. Um, That was really unfortunate this year because it was such a large crop. And I know that um, some growers didn't get to find homes for all of their grapes. And not knowing much about how all that works with grape contracts, I was just surprised to know that there weren't contracts in place. Because I hear that there need to be more Texas grapes, that we need more vineyards. We need more acres. But then when I hear that there's a huge crop and not homes for those, is just surprising. Um, so I, I do hope that people heed that advice. Do you, I don't know if you want to talk any more about that that issue in particular.
1: Yeah, I, I, think, I think just having the contract in place and then communicating really well with your buyer, if you're a grower, because uh, what happened this year, um, at least from my observation, is the Hill Country had a big year too. Everyone had a big year. So if a Hill Country grower had a a buyer and they were contracted for 10 tons and they said, hey, I've got 15, can you help me out and take this? And it was early in the year when they still had tank space. They might be, you know, willing to do that. And in fact, they did. And so they filled up their tank space a lot faster. And so then when those late varieties were coming in from the high plains, six to eight weeks later, the tank space was already filled up. So um, if you didn't have a contract and someone you're communicating with and reminding them, hey, remember, I've got these 10 tons of fruit coming. They're gonna be arriving in October. Uh, Make sure you have room for them. uh, Then you really didn't have a place for that fruit. And that uh, was the first year that personally clients of mine I had to, it wasn't a, a terrible amount, but I, I had some growers actually have to dump some fruit on the ground, and that's really sad for me to see, and even more bad. sad for the grower. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Do you think that growers will do anything differently going into this next year in terms of hanging so much fruit so late in the season?
1: Well, I think you know what growers need to do is is start looking at their crop load early in the season, and that starts with pruning. I do a lot of um, work on pruning to try to get the crop load dialed in. We always want to have a little more out there than we think uh, we need because it's it's a good problem to have a little too much fruit. We want to get past the late spring freezes. Uh, I'm not a proponent of leaving three or four times more bud or crop than we need out in the vineyard. I wanna keep it more balanced than that because you, you create other issues otherwise. But there's the first pass of crop reduction is in shoot thinning. And then the next is when you do your your formal crop evaluation before bloom and even really better after fruit set, because then you can see what's setting and, and what made it through fruit set because in twenty twenty two we had a heat spell that really disrupted and it was it was really It was awful. It took out a lot of the flowers and fruit production in 2022, specifically on the high plains, but also in the hill country. So um, after you've got fruit set, you can go through and evaluate if you need to do either additional shoot thinning or fruit thinning. Um, but then certainly by lag phase, which is when the berries stop growing based on cell division and start growing based on cell expansion, that's another opportunity to drop fruit and still have an impact on the quality of the fruit, uh, for the rest of the season. So I think just dialing in the crop load earlier and, and just doing the basic viticulture practices that we should be doing in the first place. You know, you should be doing some shoot thinning. You should be doing uh, some crop um, removal if the the crop's too high. And there's strategies for keeping it there for a little bit to slow down vigor. Some growers try that, but you really need to get it off at a time where it's actually going to impact the remaining fruit and not wait till the last minute because it doesn't do much other than cost you money if you wait too late. So they could be doing that. They could also be making sure that... um, with this big year that we had, that they're talking to their, their buyers now and probably seeking out new buyers if they didn't have a home for all of their fruit and looking at different solutions. I don't know how many new wine brands started as a result of this extra fruit, but I'm sure some growers might've, uh, you know, put their own grapes into tank space and with hopes of either creating a brand or selling that in the bulk market later. Um, but we never know what each year is going to bring, Shelley. Um, I've had one winemaker tell me already, hey, if, if we have a small year in 2024, that'll be okay with me because I've got enough wine to make it through. Um, but that doesn't help the great grower who needs to hit their their margin on their yield and their, their return. So that's why I'm saying to my growers, find the home for it now and make sure you've got at least for your, your target you need to hit for your yield To make your business sustainable that you've got a home for that fruit
0: well you have a wealth of information and i hope that um that 2024 is a wonderful year for all the spots where you have clients and especially for our texas grape growers so Um, I I know I have a lot of different cities on my weather app because I'm checking the weather in the hill country and the high plains and, of course, the various cities where I have family. But I can only imagine if you're tracking vineyard weather in different states and countries. Yours is probably a mess.
1: Yeah. Now, I'm constantly texting growers in different parts of the country saying, here's what my data says. What did it actually say with your sensor? And so I do use you know, temperature sensors and soil moisture sensors and things like that in the vineyards I work with to help get that data remotely. Uh, it's been really helpful.
0: I also want to say congratulations to you. I know you won a big award this year, a Distinguished Service Award for ASEV.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Shelly. That was a huge honor. And uh, it's an organization, the American Society of Enology and Viticulture Eastern Section is where I've done most of my, uh, I guess, uh, volunteer work and, and, and contributed more to that section than anything else. So that was a huge honor. And um, I just, yeah, I'm speechless on it. it. was really great.
0: That's super. Well, if people want to connect with you on anything that we've talked about today, where should they find you?
1: OK, well, if uh, you mentioned a course that you took or the, the presentation that you viewed on the 2023 season, if anyone missed that, that was a, a free presentation that I did. I, I often do those um, throughout the season that can be found at virtual viticultureacademy.com, as well as um, all of the content. If you like to learn by watching videos or printing out a how to guide. Um, Or if you'd like to watch some of the past presentations that I've done, virtualviticultureacademy.com, there's a tab there, the Learn tab, and then you can go to Grower Guides, and it will be right up there on the Grower Guides page. So we try and make that easy. Um, If you just want to listen in, uh, I'd I'd encourage everyone to visit vineyardundergroundpodcast.com. That's where I have the podcast hosted. And you can find the Vineyard Underground wherever you stream podcasts, Spotify or Apple.
0: Wonderful. Well, I bet we have a lot of crossover listeners. And so shout out to everybody who listens to my podcast or yours while they're working the vines.
1: Well, Shelly, I, I really appreciate, as I'm sure as much as you do, being in between everyone's earbuds while they're out there working. Uh, hopefully we can keep them company and keep them educated and uh, hopefully keep them inspired.
0: I hope so. Well, thanks for being on today and um, have a wonderful 2024 growing season. Let's do
1: it. All right. Thanks, Shelley. Really, really appreciate being here. And good luck to you in 2024 with your podcast and everything you do. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Fritz. Stay tuned for Demerits and Gold Stars. This is the time in the podcast when I ask you to do something for me. First is to share the podcast with others. You can do that on social media by tagging at Texas Wine Pod. You can also leave the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Thanks to the anonymous listener who left a review on Apple Podcasts. It says in part, Shelly does a great job of interviewing guests. You can tell that she does her research before the interview. She actually listens to guests' answers and asks pertinent follow-up questions. Guests start giving better answers because they sense that they're talking to someone who is knowledgeable, genuinely interested, and who will understand what they're talking about. Shelly does a fantastic job of showcasing all the reasons we love Texas wine, Texas terroir, Texas grapes, Texas winemakers, Texas wineries, Texas hospitality, and above all, quality of the final product. Thanks for leaving the review. And that one made me giggle, especially the part I skipped. Don't forget to visit my website to sign up for my occasional newsletter. That's where I'll communicate with you on my recent wine events and fun finds and wine and travel. That's it. This is TexasWine.com. Now it's time for a gold star and a demerit. This one's a huge gold star and a Texas sparkling wine toast going out to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Texas Hill Country wineries. These fine folks have been promoting and elevating the Texas wine industry for a quarter century founded in 1999 with eight visionary members. These original wineries are still integral members. Even now, They include Becker Vineyards, Fall Creek Vineyards, Flat Creek Estate, Sister Creek Vineyard, Texas Hills Vineyards, Fredericksburg Winery, Grape Creek Vineyards, and Spicewood Vineyards. From the outset, this association's goal was to spotlight their wineries and tasting rooms while championing the excellence of Texas wines. And they do that incredibly well, in my opinion, from their passport programs that encourage folks to visit wineries and purchase wine, the road shows that have happened across the state, the wine symposium that I'm about to attend in the more recent winemaker dinners, and of course the scholarship funds that they've distributed to help countless students continue their studies. January Weesey is the executive director of the Hill Country Wineries Association, and she's been there for 15 years. It's incredible how the organization has grown and evolved as the Texas wine scene has exploded. I know it's not always clear skies and roses, and that's just kind of how association work goes, but somehow they have persevered and gotten stuff done. So cheers to that. I look forward to raising a glass with you at next week's wine symposium. I hope everyone listening is following their social media so that you can be informed about some of the great plans they've got for 2024. They've got a roadshow in the Woodlands on April 18th, a 25th anniversary celebration at Arch Ray in June, and a new type of passport experience coming up in August. So stay tuned for more on those. And again, my hat is off to you as you're celebrating this milestone. And then the demerit. This demerit was not actually originally issued by me. I'm just repeating it. And I certainly don't enjoy seeing this kind of story in the press, but I do think it's a good reminder of how wineries can be perceived. The Dallas Observer is a local weekly paper, and one of their writers, Lauren Drews Daniels, recently published this article. Barron's Creek Tasting Room is now open in Bishop Arts. But what is it? subtitled we tried a new winery tasting room in the bishop arts district or did we in the article daniels starts out by giving some statistics about the texas wine industry she mentions that it makes sense that hill country wineries like baron's creek are spreading their boozy wings to open wine tasting rooms across the state she says baron's creek is hard to figure out though You'd be hard-pressed to find out about its wines, grapes, vines, techniques, or even the owner's names on the website. There's plenty of information on their wine club and prices, like the 2020 Petite Syrah for $50. If that price made you spit out your $10 French rosé on your screen, sames. Ugh. She says, here's the thing. We like the story. That's what makes a bottle of wine or a steak or a craft beer interesting. Next, the author tried to find out more information about the winery by Googling and doing a deep dive on their website. She says she found one blog post tucked away on their website with a bit more information, like that the grapes are harvested and pressed as close to the harvest site as possible, but has no indication of where that might be. Then she closes by saying that she looked up the vineyard in Fredericksburg to see whether there is a production facility or even vines, and she said it was hard to tell. She says, alas, certainly not enough to supply a wine club. Well, ouch, but it is important to hear this feedback because you want to make sure that your hospitality team is answering the questions that people have and that your website tells your brand story. And if you need help with that, please reach out. Well, that's it for this episode. I'll be back in two weeks with an interview with Mike and Kristen Nelson of Abastris Winery, I can't wait. Until then, you can get in touch, send your feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes. You can email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com. If you've been enjoying this podcast for a while, please consider supporting it by donating virtual Texas wine. That's how you can help defray my podcast expenses, like attending the Hill Country Wine Symposium. I sure appreciate it. You can do that at thisistexaswine.com. And finally, thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Check out TXWineLover.com and download the app to help you plan your next Texas winery trip. Thanks for listening. Cheers, y'all.